Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabu Raish, your host, and honored to have in the studio in Sydney. Uh, this is someone who's experienced a lot in his life from a young child, uh, experienced abuse, both physically and sexually. He was abandoned as a young age. He entered into a, a homosexual lifestyle um, and was a gay activist for many years. He became a Catholic, left his boyfriend, and then uh, he got married and has now a father, is a father of a teenager, and now the founder of True Identity. It's a community that aims to help people and journey with them through sexuality, identity, gender, and we're going to sit down and discuss all of this uh, with him. Is none other than James Parker. James, great to see you. Shavel, good to be with you today. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me here. Thanks for being on. Uh, we've known each other over the years, and and, um, and I've, I've had you on uh, years ago on a podcast. We had Gabriel Kuby, and we've discussed uh, various things around culture, but I really wanted to have an opportunity to sit down with you and just sort of re you know, share your story because there's so many facets to it. And, and I got the honor last night to, to hear more um, and with our local community. It was just, um, you, you've articulated it so well, but it's, it's, it's such a roller coaster ride hearing your story. But uh, I guess the eye opening thing is it's not uncommon. And that's what we're going to unpack, especially with your community you founded. Uh, your journey with many people who are experiencing similar things uh, along along their life. Uh, so could we start? You know, I know how how long's a piece of string, but the express version. Diving into your upbringing, um, you, you, you're from England, uh, and and then how you discovered your identity over your lifespan, and and. Uh, let, let's dive in. We, we good Without a this? question, I'd love All to right. do that. Love to. Thanks. So really, I think some of the significant or the, the, the poignant bits of my story is I came out at the age of 17, the first guy to come out in a Catholic high school. Um, I was a Protestant at the time who got a scholarship to a Catholic high school. And um, this is back in the 1980s when the, even the whole concept of people being gay and out was still really quite frightening, to mm -hmm. say the least. Um, at the age of 18, I ended up going to university and there I threw myself into gay activism. Again, I was the first person to come out in university. So there was no sort of safe space and a coffee machine for me and, and the rest of it, you know, um, at university. So I really saw myself as um, needing to stand up for the essence of what were people's human rights. Mm. Not just that, I also had, uh, I had a, always had a desire for God and a knowledge of God. But I did see and believe the church to be wrong in her teaching, particularly the okay. Catholic church. Were you going to church uh, growing up? I was going to church growing up. So I was a practicing Anglican, so okay. what some would call America an Episcopalian. Yep. Um, uh, and, but I was raised to believe that the, the Catholics were a bit quacky and a bit weird, mm. really, you know, a bit over the top about many different things. Um, of course, when you tell your child not to go near something, the very thing they do is, with curiosity, they go near it. So, of course, there I was in a Catholic school, and I was seeing particularly the sacramental life being lived out. It was a boarding school, so, you know, uh, the boys and the girls at the school, there was an opportunity for confession, there was an opportunity for daily mass. And even towards the end of my time in school, even though I'd come out, I was attending daily mass. Um, at university, I wasn't attending, attending daily mass, certainly to begin with, but I was still very much... Um, being exposed to the gospel and exposed to the Catholic sacramental life, even though I wasn't practicing yeah. that sacramental life. But it was there, um, having thrown myself into gay activism, there was a time of being very promiscuous. Um, but I did actually settle down with a long-term boyfriend. Okay. 
And it was in the midst of that relationship that I was invited to, um, to respond to the question, do you want more love in your life? Now, I can't imagine there being one person listening to this or, or if they're viewing this, who wouldn't turn around and go, well, that, I'd say yes to that. Of course we would. Yes. Everybody would. So in some way, that was the hook. And I found myself within a group of young Catholics who were basically worshipping God and, and who'd realised that actually there's, that, that they didn't want religion, they wanted relationship. Mm. So within a number of weeks, I did a prayer of repentance, said, Lord, if there's anything that stands in the way of your love, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. And I, send me your love. Um, and people prayed that the Holy Spirit would come and touch me. A very simple prayer, literally within a couple of minutes. Now, the thing is this, is if you give God a millimetre, he will take at least a kilometre, you know, or <laughs> if it's a yard, you know, he'll take a couple of miles from you. And, and what happened is um, I then began just to, as it says in Psalm 131, I began to quieten my soul like a well-fed child. And within a number of weeks, I could learn to be sit. I could sit and be quiet for about six minutes. That was a miracle for me because I'd always been mm. loud as could be. There was, there was an anxiety and a sense of rejection within me. So before being rejected, I would, in a sense, I would make myself so noisy that I wouldn't be able to hear the rejection because there was so much pain within me. I'm in a long-term gay relationship. I say yes to Jesus and my soul begins to experience what I can only describe as drops of water on a very arid land of my soul. Mm. Within weeks, my boyfriend sees this. He says, I want what you've got. And that's very important to understand this. We are a practicing gay couple, monogamous and faithful to one another. We are both hankering after more love and after Jesus. Literally the God-shaped hole within us is starting to scream, if you like. He came to the Lord as well, and we became what I'd regard as another said was this model gay Christian couple. We were reading our Bibles. He was a lapsed Catholic, so he started going back to Mass. I was going to Mass with him. We, were the, we would turn up early to Mass with our Bibles, which is unheard of. You know, the gay couple's here before everybody else with their Bibles, you know, reading it. Um, so we were serious about our faith. But a number of months after we'd gone into that kind of pattern, I began as I sought God's face to feel very, very uncomfortable with what was going on between us. It wasn't that I didn't genuinely love this man, but I sensed that our expression of love and the way that we were living that out, and particularly from a bedroom perspective, mm. that it was wrong. And so it came to a point, keeping it brief, where I knew that I had to step aside from this relationship. I needed that space. And I sensed God was calling me to go deeper into relationship with him. And I'll be really honest with you, I thought, well, I'll give God a go. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just get back together. Yeah. Because we both clearly do really, you know, we're sincere friends and we love each other very much. But as I stepped aside from that relationship, it's there really as I stepped through that door, the Lord knocking at the door of my heart and I opened it and said, yes, I'm going to come in and I want to give you the chance to be number one, Lord. Mm. Then things really began to unravel. So there I am now in my early 20s, and I'm beginning to, as I develop this prayer life and silence in my heart, it is as though the floodgates of my memories begin to rise. And the Lord begins to show me the fact that um, I'd had numerous really traumatic experiences. The significant ones would be the fact that I'd been sexually abused between the ages of eight and 11, almost on a weekly basis. And I had totally repressed this. 
And this was by a Christian married man that had abused me, a teacher from my school. I mean, you, you, that's what's, what's hard to understand. And for many who, who, can't, who don't relate, you, you didn't talk about this with anyone. Not at all. And there was a reason why I didn't talk about that. First of all, is those who might have been around in the 70s when I was young, um, uh, this is just a few years after what we'd call the sexual revolution of the 60s. Okay. But there still wasn't a vocabulary to talk about these things. Mm. And also, you certainly wouldn't talk about things that had a homosexual nature to them because that yeah. still wasn't part of the nation's vocabulary, the Western nation's vocabulary. The other side of it is this, is that um, I'd been exposed to pornography briefly before the abuse began. And in the setting in which I was introduced to pornography, there was a sense of, which it still is today, shh, don't talk about this. Mm. So anything sexy or sexual, was not to be talked about. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, is to be able to understand childhood sexual abuse. Basically, the groomer turns round towards the victim and grooms them not to speak. There is always some form of threat. Mm. This will happen more. I will hurt your sister. I will kill your rabbit. Or it will just get worse for you, or whatever it might be. Or you really are bad. And if your parents find out, you'll get into more trouble. And so what happens is you learn in some way or other to comply with whatever the, the, the groomer says to you, yeah. who ultimately, of course, becomes the perpetrator. So what happened is, and I was told this was my punishment for not doing my scripture work well, of all the things to use against a child. So I just worked really, really hard with scripture, and my marks were never that great, however hard I worked. Therefore, that justified the fact that the teacher could say to me, well, this is why you're being abused, because your work isn't, still isn't good. And of course the pain is so great mm -hmm. and the pain is so deep that if you sit there and live in the midst of a pain that a child cannot process, in a sense that child becomes despairing and suicidal. So you push it down, you repress it as much as you can. But of course there are always telltale signs. So I was a loud, angry child. I challenged every authority going because in this situation of powerlessness and the abuse, I couldn't challenge it. This man had all the power over me. So whenever there was an opportunity to try and be powerful, I tried to be that. Mm. So I was just seen to be this difficult child. And yet there were numerous telltale signs and hallmarks that I was being abused. Um, and one of those is the fact that if you look really carefully at my face, you'll see I've got quite a number of scars. And I was dissociated, cut off from my body because I'd learned to hate my body and felt it was dirty and shameful. So I would walk into doors, I'd walk into walls, I'd walk into everything, and I was forever being in the hospital having my face repaired. Um, and people just saw me as a hypochondriac. You know, I was always feeling sick, and doctors said we can't find anything wrong with him. You know, so I was just seen as a trouble causer. And yet really what I was doing was trying to manifest the fact that there is something deeply wrong in my life or with me. So that was revealed in the prayer, as well as the fact that, you know, I learned what it was to say, I do have a porn addiction. I'm struggling with this and have done for years. At like, a young age. Well, from the age, of, from the age of eight, I was introduced to pornography. But by the age of 14, mm. I'd managed to find different ways to access hardcore pornography. This is way before the internet. Yeah. And so it, by the age of 16, I was visiting the adult shops myself with my clothing allowance that my parents had given me. And I kept saying I'd lost the money. I don't know what I did with it. Mm. But deep down what I was doing is I was feeding this deep gnawing need in me to, um, to connect. And that's what it was. You know, ultimately the need was not wrong. The way it was being, I, I tried to meet that need was, was sinful. 
So I got a legitimate need to connect, but I was looking to try and meet that need in illegitimate ways, we might say. So that came up and then, but in the midst of this journey of restoration, um, this is in the depths of prayer and with, a, a, you know, with, with really insightful Christian therapy, um, what happened is I came back to the fact, and as you mentioned in the beginning, that I'd been abandoned at birth, I'd been incubated for three months, I'd been fostered for three months, I was then placed into the orphanage before being adopted. Now, those first few months of life are integral to being able to establish how a child might respond in the rest of their life. And we know this today. Well, so we know, uh, yes, yeah, in neonatal care, it's, it's all there today. I mean, even if a baby is born premature and it can survive outside the womb, generally they strap that baby to the mother's chest. So the baby hears that, the heartbeat, the, mm. you know, the boom, boom, boom of the heartbeat, because God has designed that a baby would be in, in the womb yeah. for nine months. If a baby is in somewhere that in an incubator or a humi crib, whatever they're called today, um, there's a way in which they try and ensure there's some form of touch towards that child. Yeah. Etc. But for, but for, for myself, and I had a twin sister as well, that's significant in my journey because we'd, we'd gone through all this early life trauma, if you like, and so our personalities had become interlinked. And I'd taken on her personality, and she took on much of mine. So there's no wonder that by my early adulthood, I was experiencing gender dysphoria. But I'd also, in my, the sense of my masculine identity had not been affirmed. It had actually been desecrated. So rather than being treated as a male with dignity, I was a male that was treated with depravity. And so therefore I was at war with the essence of my own body and, the and my own masculinity. So that's why I was gravitating rapidly towards considering myself as a, a woman trapped in a man's body. So I totally wow. understand why that has become a phenomenon today. And this is partly um, a byproduct of um, two generations away from the sexual revolution where we began to move away from natural law, mm -hmm. from the God-given boundaries that have been laid down through Holy Scripture, through the church's magisterium, and through tradition, and we decided to do it our own way. Wow. So That's good, yeah. you can zoom out and see all that. Absolutely. But the what's interesting is, so you said you were the first um, to come out, I mean, 17 in a, in a Catholic school. So I can imagine uh, that that would have been sort of fairly foreign at the time and what was that you know just want to go into that moment because there's p plenty of people who are probably quietly suffering with and who have same-sex attraction and I mean right now in this modern age it's, it's more celebrated but it was not so not I guess all. In, in the 70s not 80s. Not at all there was, um, there, was, there was enormous phobia around that. So what was that like for you then um, did you lose friends? Did you? Did people disassociate with you? No. Just to just to share in that that little. I mean, and this is this is and this in some way this was partly the beginnings of, in a sense, my being lured towards converting towards Catholicism, mm. because what happened is there was no rejection. People were very accepting. In fact, what happened, particularly when I came out to some of my mates at school, and it was very much a, it was um, uh, it was a co-educational school, but it was mostly boys. Very very rugby heavy, you know, footy heavy, etc. rugby union. And, um, and so in coming out to some of the guys that I, they were my heroes in many ways. I was the camp, very feminine guy. And these guys just seemed to epitomize all that was masculine. But when I shared my pain with them at the age of 17, many of them shared their pain with me and just said, well, you think your life's difficult. This is what I struggled with, which was nothing to do with my struggle. But they too were in pain. 
So what happened is in some way it relieved my own pain because they were manifesting to me the fact that they were suffering or struggling from original sin, like everybody does. Yep. Yep. So I began rather than to see myself as this, you know, this poor victim, gay man, whatever, um, I began to see that that original sin was affecting me and affecting them and they struggled with sin as I struggled with sin. Um, I also went to confession for the first time as a 17 year old and most people are sort of forced to go to first, you know, their first confession as a kid or something. Yeah. Well, there I am at the age of 17. I, because of the layers of trauma that I was carrying around and repressing, um, I'd noticed that some of my mates at school, some of the, what I regard as the good guys, that, you know, I mean, they were just good guys, they seemed wholesome guys. But I noticed that on a Saturday evening, they would leave study time. This isn't a boarding school, and they'd go to this confession thing. And I just thought, well, there must be something in this because, you know, these guys seem really balanced and nice guys. And, and clearly they were, you know, they were having their, their sins that were red as cr crimson, washed white yeah. as snow. And I went and knocked on the, the, one of the priest's door, uh, the priest's door one day. And he was in his 80s. He'd been a prisoner of war with the Japanese. So he'd seen wow. suffering. And we all knew from his story he'd seen suffering. But this man was love on legs. He was just mm. beautiful. And he literally was Christ in our midst. And I knocked on his door and I said, um, I want you to hear my confession. He said, you're not Catholic. I said, I'm not. He said, well, come in and sit down and you know, we'll, mm. we'll have a look at this. And, and he said, well, would you like to, you know, what, what type of things did you want to talk about? And of course he gave me permission to talk. And he was silent. And he looked at me and engaged with me and he listened to mm. everything. And as you're nodding your head at me now, he was nodding his head at me, just listening. And I went <laughs> with all these things. And then after talking for far too long as I generally do. He then said, uh, I said, but I came here for confession, so I don't know what to do. He said, you've just done it. Now, I wasn't a Catholic. He didn't absolve me of my sins. But he turned around and said to me, you know, God's heard everything and he loves you. And I felt a sense through this man's mouth that the love of God and his presence hit me. And I walked out of that room and I was unquestionably 12 foot, three or four meters higher than I was when I went in. At 17. At 17. So right at the start of you coming out. That's right. Uh, That's interesting. Right. So yeah. what's happened is there I am coming out and finding acceptance, but actually the probably the deepest experience for me was there in the church that I was able to speak of these things. And in some way, see, if the priests weren't going to accept me at school, then, you know, I thought, well, because I expected to be rejected. Yeah. There's something wrong with me. Maybe told me there's something wrong with me. Now, were my same-sex attractions and the way I wanted to, or the way I fantasize and want to live them out, were they objectively disordered? Absolutely they were. Thank you, Mother Church, mm. for getting the wording right. Mm. Many people say it's despicable, you can't say it's intrinsically evil. People aren't intrinsically evil. Not at all. But the way in which we embrace evil, or the way in which we embrace something that will lead us away from Christ, is clearly evil. Yes. And when something's evil, it's evil. So it's intrinsically evil. So again, even though these are very, very strong words that Mother Church uses in the magisterium, they are correct. Of course, the role today is to try and find pastors and others who, from a pastoral care perspective, are able to break open these words and to explain to people, you are God's beloved, but like everybody else, you need the transforming of your mind and of your soul as well. And that's what began in some way to happen to me. Certainly that seed was sown in me as a 17-year-old. But then there I am in my 20s, having left my boyfriend. I'd begun a therapeutic journey with an insightful Christian man. 
And I'm, I'm, I've still got this setting of beautiful young Christians who are pursuing holiness. Mm. And that's an important word, holiness. Yes. Because at no point did anybody say to me, well, you need to renounce homosexuality and you need this and you need that. What they were doing with me is saying, we want to be holy, come with us. Mm. And they gave me permission sometimes to speak into their lives. And I slowly but surely began to give them permission to speak into mine. And I mean slowly but surely because, of course, they got a lot of speaking in my life to do <laughs> because I didn't have any boundaries. My boundaries had been shot as a child mm -hmm. and there's very few boundaries within the gay community, you know, and the LGBT community. And so what happened is they began slowly but surely to help to build me, to, to build me up. And um, again, at this point, because they were Catholic, I was regularly attending mass at this point. Um, I'd begun to pray the rosary and to have that, you know, that slow mm. meditative um, uh, steps on the life of Christ. And I remember one day crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I've got no idea what it means to be male. And the only way I can describe it is this, is that for, I felt the Lord say to me, go to my mother, which is John 19, 27, behold your mother. Yes. You know, and I, and I was a bit like, oh, well, I, I'm not Catholic. I, I, we don't do that, <laughs> you know. Um, but because I sense strongly this, the, the, this unconditional love within me, I thought, well, give it a go. So um, the long and short of it is, is I almost whispered, I'm open to the revelation of, of Mary as my mother. And for what I can only describe as a nanosecond, I knew that I was in the presence of Mary. And I knew it. And I knew it because it was the first time ever being in the company of that which was the perfect woman the perfect feminine. Mm. I knew I wasn't that. And that, it, that's what sparked off for me the fact, oh my goodness, then I have to be male. I can no longer doubt the fact that my biology is my reality, full stop. It doesn't matter what I've thought or what I felt, I now have to surrender to the fact that that's my reality and entrust that to the Lord's hands. Now as I did that within, um, in fact, I have no idea how, what the time frame was. It might have been nine months, it might have been a okay. year, but I came to a point where I realized, Charbel, um, again, with others walking alongside me, and there's always a support network around me, which is why mm. I'm so passionate about true identity, being a yes. support network for people around sexuality, gender identity, is um, what happened is this, is I came to a realization that even in my own mother's womb, I'd made a vow to reject my own masculine identity. Now people say, well, how could you possibly know that? I said, well, I didn't really. It was a sense I had. And others came to me and said, look, we've been having this sense in prayer. You know, if God can talk through a donkey, which he does in the Old Testament, then surely he can talk through my mates who got a living relationship with Jesus. So what happens is they said, we have this just strong sense that this is what happened. And so as casually with my lips, I said, well, Lord, if in any way I made a vow and have rejected my masculinity, I repent. And I ask you to restore to me the years the locusts have eaten, which wow. is Joel 2.25. I repent of rejecting any part of my, my manhood and male identity. All I can say to you is this, is within three months, my voice dropped. I'm in my 20s and my voice <laughs> drops about an octave and my walk begins to change because I'd got this very feminine walk. And I began to grow hair on parts of my body that previously I hadn't. I mean, it's like, it's almost as though I had this repressed puberty waiting to explode within me. And we know the womb's an important place because in Luke chapter two, you know, we see Mary visiting her cousin yes. Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb because he's conscious of the spirit of God. 
And so what happens is the womb is an important place. That's why pro-life work is so important. You, you can't say that you follow Christ and not be pro-life yes. and not have you know, total concern for life in the womb. You can't. So this is what the Lord was doing with me. And as, and as I began to accept my own masculine identity and I began to take my place as a man among other men, men were demystified to me. Previously, they'd been a mystery, which is why I hankered after them, was looking to every man mm. to, in a sense, try and find a sense of restoration within myself. But as the Spirit of God began to, in a sense, began to give back to me all that I'd never had previously, then men stopped being a mystery. So that sexualization of men left me. And then I thought, then I went asexual. Well, I, I, I just wasn't sexualized at all for a time. I thought, I've mastered chastity, yes, <laughs> you know. But of course, I hadn't at all really. Is God took me through that asexual phase where I'd learned what filial love was, what it was mm. to be a brother to a brother. Yes. And to love having a heart relationship with another man without feeling slightly threatened by him, mm. but being his equal, but just different yes. as we all are. And once I'd established a degree, a sufficient degree of filial love, then what happened is an attraction towards women began to rise because God is mystery. He's created us to yes. pursue mystery. And therefore I began to see the curves of women, which I would never <laughs> have thought would have happened because that was never the goal. The goal was holiness. Yes. So people say, oh, I've been praying. I don't want to be gay. I'm like, stop praying that prayer. Don't pray it. Pray to be holy. Yeah. Pray to be totally surrendered to the Lord and see what he does with you. Because some of the holiest people I know still experience same-sex attraction. But that same-sex attraction is way, 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 way down on the list of their priorities. Their priority is Jesus Christ and his gospel and his spirit able to work in their lives and to be true to the sacramental life of the church and to place themselves under obedience to the magisterium. They've learned that their identity, their true identity, is in Christ Jesus. Not in their feelings, Amen. not in their attractions, you know, not in, not in who they know or what they do. It is solely in the person of Jesus Christ which is why Galatians 3, 28 is so important when it says to us, there's now no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer male or female. There's no longer master or slave. And I would say there's no longer LGBTQIA, P plus 2S, or even straight. You are one in Christ or you're mm -hmm. not. That's it. That was We're the all children line. of God. All children of God. That's and that is our truest identity. Yes. And so it doesn't matter who I meet with, wherever they're at on the, on the gender spectrum or not on the gender spectrum, the intention is that they should know that they are a beloved child of the living God and that they will find peace and they will find a, a fuller life, if not the fullness of life as promised in John 10, mm. 10, by surrendering themselves to that journey of holy, holiness and permitting through their weakness for God's power to be made perfect, as Paul says in his letters. Wow. So amazing. So much stuff. I just want to, uh, that, that, that profound uh, discovery of Mary, and that relationship and discovery of the feminine as a man who was fairly feminine, right? Very feminine. On the outside. Very <laughs> so, um, and when you discover Mary, and she is the model, right? She's, she really is the model disciple. Um, and then it's beautiful to see, you know, within months you have now been, you're transforming. Yeah. And then you discover the beauty of the femininity and then your identity and how you are a man. Yeah. A lady in all this, but can so what? What I today, right now, we have LGBTQ, and it keeps going. And the problem is, there is sort of an undoing. We've had a very strong feminist movement, yes, for a long time, and then then we've had very strong um, 
with the, with the Mardi Gras and the, and, and, and the gay rights and 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 look absolutely I know yeah it, it's trauma it's traumatic growing up and those who have same-sex attraction have been bullied or been and, and that's many, not many, acceptable. many struggles there's always struggles yeah. not acceptable yeah, that's right. but we get to a point where um, now we're in a time with the transgender movement and so this whole gender fluidity and we've been told in my lifetime at least that, that we, we've had this um, we can identify a gay gene and so you're born that way so how could you uh, distinguish between you know between heterosexual or same-sex attraction you're just born that way and so this is God-given and there are many Catholics talking this way leaders uh, and so okay if we are if it's God-given now we have this phenomenon of the transgender movement who are saying you can change <laughs> gender so, so we have to make up our mind now is it is it God-given or is it a choice and then the whole, where does this leave now in the feminist movement now? Well, well, let's, this let's, trans, is yeah. so much going on. There's, there's so much going it's on. Just, can we unpack a bit of this? The I'd moment, love to do Someone that. who's lived in this life. That's right. Well, well, first of all, the thing is, this is um, the, the way in which um, uh, the gay community said that they would, could fight for human rights was to say, well, as somebody is black or somebody is Asian, whatever, yeah. we are gay and we can't change that because we're born that way. So there was a big push to say that. Now, I grew up believing I was born that way because it's all I'd ever experienced. I didn't choose this. Mm. Nobody in their right mind would choose to be same-sex attracted. Um, and people saying, well, it's just who we are. It's a very easy throwaway phrase, and it, it is who I, that's, that's what yeah. I was. I was 100% same-sex attracted. So it's incredibly important to accept that's where you are and what you're feeling. And I still fight for those rights today. And say to many in the church, it's important that we have places and spaces where people can say, this is what I feel, this is where I'm at, and that we meet them there where they're at. Mm. Now, the fact is original sin affects all of us. So if we meet each other where we're at, God always has more. And it's important we call each other onto that journey. So those who say, well, that's not just where you're at, it's who you are, and that's all you've got, and close the door to that. That causes an injustice towards mm. the opportunity for that person to grow in holiness. That's right. They sell themselves short. That, that's right. Yeah. That, that is in and of its own right a sin. And that person should have a millstone put around their neck, as Jesus oh. said in the gospel, mm. because it's closing the door for the opportunity for them to, and to experience the power of the resurrection in their lives. So what happens here is, is people have said that people have been born that way. Now, there have been numerous scientific research around this and at one point they went to um, uh, identical twins who are genetically identical and you've got one twin saying I've always been same-sex attracted and the other twin saying well I've never been same-sex attracted and they said well hang on a minute this doesn't this doesn't commute uh, sorry compute it doesn't it, we, we can't yeah. turn, it doesn't, just doesn't work out you know you are a twin I'm a well. twin although I've got a twin sister okay so it's different if I would got an identical twin brother that would be one yes. thing but I know of many identical twins mm. and they're identical twin brothers, yes. um, where one has professed their gain, and one says they haven't been. But actually, the answer to that question, is someone born gay, or is it a genetic thing, was answered back in 2019, in the August edition of a magazine called Science. So Science Magazine, August 2019. The results of research done on just over 490,000 people. Nearly half a million Nearly people. half a million people. Wow they released the research and they were quite fearful of releasing the research because of course many people who worked on the project to try and find the gay gene were themselves from the LGBTQ mm. community. 
But what they did discover is this is, they could categorically say we have looked anywhere and everywhere, there is no gay gene, is the first thing. But what they did notice in their research is that people's emotional response or ongoing emotional response to their environment shaped people's sexual attraction and what they'd regard as sexuality. How so? Let's go back to that again. Yeah. Your emotional response yep. to your environment around you and how you perceive that environment and how you respond to it begins to shape your sexual attractions mm. and how you will respond as a sexual person in certain circumstances. So let's go back to my life. I'm introduced to pornography at the age of eight, black and white pictures, but nevertheless sufficiently you know, tantalizing in somewhere or other to begin to, um, uh, begin to stir my erogenous zones and, 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 and the arousal within me. But I was told that was to be private. Then my first sexual experience is at the hands of another man. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated over a number of years. So there's no wonder that by the age of 11, when the abuse stopped, that I was, I'd been trained in this way. I meet many people, 50, 60, even 70 year olds, when we have conversations and we look beneath the surface and they'll say to me, well, I was made to do this with such and such, an uncle or a cousin or somebody else, whatever it might be, when I was you know, nine or when I was 13 or I was 14. And, and, and then some of them now say, I now realize they made me gay. It's a very strong phrase for someone to use. Yeah. And in some cases, these people have got married, they've had kids, and then it's all fallen apart because nobody's ever recognized that actually their emotional responses to their environment formed where their sexual attraction was. Now, I mentioned that very deliberately because some people would say, oh, well, you know, I'm a deluded person. I was always straight. I don't know how you can sleep with several hundred men and always be straight, but that's nothing altogether. Yeah, that is another point. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, was I gay? Yeah. Absolutely, I was gay. Abs I mean, I ticked every box. Mm. I just did, and now I'm not. That's it. Full stop. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I got nothing to lose by saying if I still am. I said, well, I still am because I know God loves me. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to turn around and say, you know, oh well, I'm just going to pretend. Well, it doesn't doesn't benefit me or anybody else, and my conscience would burn anyway if that was the case. But the 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 uh, the, the clear thing about this is that. Um, um, in, the, in these circumstances, we're meeting more and more people who, through good therapy and through spiritual maturity and spiritual development and that journey of holiness, Jesus is actually helping them to find restoration of the years that the locusts have eaten. Joel yeah. 2.25 again. So I've, I know people across at least 40 countries. And I'm not just talking one or two people. I'm talking in some cases hundreds of people across America, hundreds of people across Europe, people in Africa, people in the Middle East, people here in Australasia, who've all gone through a similar journey to my own self here in Australia. I know well over 100 people wow. who've gone through a similar journey to myself. And the importance of hearing about this journey is this, is our mental health has improved. Wow. Our suicidal ideation has gone down. Mm. Our depression has gone down or actually ceased. Our anxiety has deceased, has deceased, has, has decreased <laughs> as well. In some way, it is deceased, yeah. you know. Um, but these are so many of the issues that we're now seeing within the LGBT community, our brothers and our sisters, whom we love. If we're not careful, we're turning around saying, oh, that's who God made you to be, that's who you are. So you're stuck now within all these unresolved issues that are there and which can leave you there. 
Now, this is why transgenderism is such an important topic. In fact, there's no such thing really as transgenderism. There's just more and more layers of people who are stuck in the effects of original sin and generational sin and social sin. Mm. And there are three types of sin braided one over the other, which, sort of make, which makes it seem impossible to be able to be released from that sin. But of course, Jesus, what he did on the cross is absolutely perfect. So every sin has been paid for. But the thing around the whole gender thing is this, is we're rapidly now seeing more and more young people who've gone down this transition avenue with their puberty blockers, their cross-sex hormones, and their surgical removal of their healthy body parts, is now young people are saying, hang on a minute, this has not been the panacea or the resolution that you promised me. I'm now left infertile, I'm now left with more serious mental health, and my life is a mess, and it will never be the same again. This is young people. And what they're speaking up about is they've realized they've got something called comorbidities. And those comorbidities are a collective of different issues that layering over each other make someone believe they're in the wrong body. A collective of issues that make somebody believe they're gay or lesbian. And you know, if you go around, you read the different biographies of people who said they've come out and they've become the, the hero of the LGBT community, whether it be the Elton Johns of this world, if you watch Rocket Man, the movie of his, mm -hmm. of his life, you will see all the childhood pain and the rejection from his father that's there. Elton John has numerous comorbidities yeah. that have permitted him to turn around and say, well, I'm gay and that's the way I am. So you're saying this is, this is, this is common. Very so, common. So out of the hundred that you know, are you saying many of them are suicidal? Many of them have had trauma. Many of them have had abuse. There's a consistent pattern. Well, here. I'm is, saying or, or? I'm saying that what happens is 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 there's certainly a high, a higher percentage of suicidal mm. ideation. We know that within the trans community in particular, there's a higher suicidal ideation within. It's the not the impression you get, right? I mean, on not the outside, everyone is happy and it's, joyful. It's and, colorful and uh, glittery. Yes, exactly. You've got the rainbow. You've got and everything going on. So and people accept party. that because that's what social media yeah. or mainstream social media and mainstream media tell mm. us. But if you look carefully, there are articles galore on the pain that people are experiencing, mm. and this is why I'm saying. It's imperative with whatever we're dealing with in life that we don't just take everything at face value, particularly where the media is concerned today, that we need to examine what is beneath the surface. Since, since when does an 11 year old say, well, I'm, I'm fine with having sex with adults? Clearly they've been sexualized. Where does an 11 year old find out about sex? Unless somebody has sexualized them or you know, they've revealed to them or demonstrated yeah. them things that are sexual. That is another pr a problem today. Pornography is introduced at such a young age. Such a young age. It's a hyper-sexualized culture Without right a now. question of doubt. Just through advertisement, media, you name it. That's uh, right. The, the fashion and uh, yeah. Wow. That's right. And, and we're seeing that all the time. You know, I'm, I'm literally being contacted by young teenagers and I'm not mm. talking just the boys. I'm talking the girls, 13, 14 year olds who are stuck in hardcore pornography. And they feel they have very, very few places wow. to go, which is why I believe that the church and the leadership mm. in the church needs to recognize that actually we thought the pandemic was an issue. I'm saying the pandemic. The pandemic yeah. is the greatest issue that's affecting us today. It's because getting worse, isn't it? It's getting it's, worse it because, because it, it, is, it is profoundly twisting an understanding of who we are as human beings what our origin, our place, our purposes as human beings. Ultra accessible these days. Ultra accessible. Uh, and, and you know, many, I, I do some work in, in, with those who are in rehabs. And as I listen to their life stories 
as the priest listened to my life story and this good therapist listened to my life story many times. I listened to their stories and many of them talk about being exposed to porn. They first saw porn images at the age of five or at the age of eight or nine. I talked to the parents of people who are transitioning or want to be non-binary and they often say, oh, maybe it was a problem that we used to watch so much pornography early in our marriage and when the kids were small, I'm like, if the kids are exposed to that, they cannot process what was going on. This stuff, you know, this is, what, this is why God is really clear, you know, in the Mosaic laws and in Leviticus, he says there's certain things you should do and certain things you shouldn't do. Yeah. You shouldn't put blokes in dresses, for example. Or they, mm. Men shouldn't dress as women, women shouldn't dress as men. You know, and men shouldn't lie next door to men in the same way that they would lie with a woman and whatever it is. Yes. I mean, God wasn't trying to be a killjoy. He's saying if you don't follow these, you will actually begin to cause your, yourself and your soul great harm. And of course what happens is this is, as we move more towards the world's words rather than towards God's word, is we are layered with shame. And shame is something we never discuss because it makes us feel shame, yeah, feel ashamed. And nobody wants to feel ashamed by different things. But when we provide people with settings where they can look at their shame, which is what the church in some places is doing and needs mm -hmm. to do more particularly, because yes. all of our shame is there on the cross in Christ. Yes. So therefore we are guaranteed the fact that if we're willing to look at our shame and we bring it to him, he will lead us to a place of, of moving beyond the shame towards resurrection. So people get layered through inappropriate sexualization and then they become trapped and the world says, oh, well, this must be who you are. Just embrace it. So they embrace and embrace and embrace and embrace and embrace. And before you know it, you've got people in all sorts of different addictive behaviors and struggling with anxiety, um, they're taking antidepressants and, and all these other different issues are happening. Now, I, I, I'm not pushing away, you know, the, the revelation of medicine today, far mm. from it. But what I am saying is this is, is if we're not careful, we are we're putting a band-aid over people's cancer. And that to me is a great injustice, particularly when we've had revelation of the fact that Jesus does restore the years the locusts have eaten. And this is why we are called to surrender to him in our weakness that his power may be made perfect within us. And what we do is we go on that journey of holiness and we learn to keep hearing that echo. My call is to be holy as my heavenly father is holy. I'm called to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect, but it's the power of God working in us, you know, Amen. doing infinitely more than we could ever ask for or imagine as it says in it's Ephesians beautiful. It's, be it's out of this world, it's beautiful. This is and this is it, you've found joy now finding your faith Absolutely. and the importance of that and then your identity. And I'd love to show the connection and you then, yeah, you had a serious relationship with a woman <laughs> and now you're a father and you have a teenage daughter. That's right. And so can you tell us how that happened? Um, because that, and how long was that process from, from when you became well, Catholic? It, it, it's, it's interesting because I mean, uh, you know, it was in my earliest twenties that, you know, I, okay, I left the gay lifestyle and I, I, I made Jesus my priority. Mm. Uh, it was then at 24 that I um, gave into Catholicism, having been introduced to a, a Jesuit Catholic school at the age of 13. Yeah. So in some ways, that there was kind of a chipping away at, at my soul for about 11 yeah. years yeah. in some way or other, having been you know, um, exposed to Catholicism and the beauty of Catholicism. Yes. You know? So for me, you know, certainly high mass on a Sunday at school, would have, there'd have been the incense and, you know, mm. and we'd seen different settings of the mass in Latin and, and uh, and, 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 you know, it, it just brought the soul raised up towards the Lord. Um, so at, at 24, I became a Catholic. And then what happens, I, 
um, I entered deeply into the sacramental life and I was very blessed to have a job within the church from the age of 25 to 28. Yeah, what role was that? That was interesting. That was a role, well, I say I became Catholic at 24 and then I ended up with a role in the Vatican at the age of 25. Oh, <laughs> you know, thrown for, right for, in. for most people, they start at the bottom and work up. I started at the top and went, and I've seriously gone yeah. down since then. <laughs> but I started in the Vatican and, um, and I was working on a project with evangelization for the great Jubilee year. Um, so that literally, that exposed me to what some would say is the heart of the church. The heart of the church is actually in, in every single celebration of the mass, there is the heart of the church amidst the faithful gathering together around the Eucharistic table. But, but I, you know, you get all the, all the Catholic gossip in Rome and everything else, but, but it exposed me not just to um, the church in Rome, but because I was traveling a lot with my job towards Africa and the Middle East and across Europe, I got to see how the Lord and how the Holy Spirit was at work in so many different ways, in so many different cultures and languages and expressions. Yeah. And that God was, he got this way of unifying his people as mm. we surrendered to him. It was, it was, it was magnificent. Pope John Paul II, the Pope at the time? Pope John Paul II, yeah, wow. the Pope at the time. And um, trying to just keep up with what he was writing was yeah. <laughs> you know, hard work. But that exposed me then towards the Catholic Church. But it, it, was, it was really, once I returned to the UK in my late 20s, and I, was, I sought to be obedient to something the Lord had been saying to me in my prayer while I was in Rome. And the Lord was saying to me, James, I want you to go back and to face five people. I want you to go back and meet your ex-boyfriend who you left some years ago. I want you to go back and face the two principal guys who sexually abused you. There was a family friend so as well as a teacher. One. There was another okay. one as well. And I want you to go and find your biological parents. So they were so, so both mum and dad, you were not with either of them? No, no, I'd been, yeah. my twin sister and I had been fully adopted and separated from anything to do with our biology. I mean, we were, had each other as biology, but otherwise we knew nobody. Um, and there was the comfort, of course, of having somebody else biological to myself. Um, because we had similarities in our blue eyes and a family of brown eyes and mm. lighter hair and a family of dark hair and the rest of it. But anyway, what happens, I returned to the UK and I made a priority of going and facing those two men who'd abused me, and I did. And I went to forgive them. That didn't mean letting them off the hook. I went to let myself off the hook from the pain I experienced. But I did also say to them, did you also have the same right to redemption as I have? And I want to offer a hand of forgiveness to you. Wow. Now you must repent as well. One of them was just, he couldn't wait to repent. He said he's, he's conscious and burned for years, and he was so happy I'd come to see him. And, um, wow. and I knew from the way we talked in our conversation, I knew I'd been the only person, but he was, a, he was, a, he was in his late teens, young, young adulthood when this was happening. And um, uh, really I, I was, um, he couldn't access girls and I was, I was already sexualized and he accessed me and used me. The teacher, the older man was a very different case altogether. I came to discover that he'd abused many, many young boys and um, and this is why the import, this is why therapy and the spiritual walk is so important. Because if I hadn't gone into therapy and had a, a revelation of those repressed memories yes. and the clarity of that, I would never have been able to go back and to face this man who admitted to me that he had abused me. He then wrote me a letter and apologized for his perverted actions towards me during my childhood. But he refused to repent. That left me mm. in a quandary. I knew this man had abused many children. He'd admitted it to me as well in the meeting we had when I went to forgive him. And I had this letter there. 
And then I ended up working on um, uh, an independent review of child protection uh, with some of the law lords in the House of Lords from in England. So I was being exposed to all these, the whole issues around child abuse. In, this is in the early, in the early noughties. To, to, uh, and so uh, there I was being exposed to this. And I thought, hang on a minute, I know this guy who's abused kids and I can't guarantee he's not still doing them. So I went to the police. I felt I had no choice but yes. to go to the police. And I had evidence because he'd written this down. And I went to the police and it ended up becoming a national case. And others wow. came forward as well. And um, Did you face him again after that? I, I had to face you... him, yes. I had to see him there, you know, in the whole court setup, oh, etc. What was that like? Well, it, it, <clears throat> it, it was, it, what, tell you what was challenging for me is this, is I'd grown up like crazy. The mm. Lord had done such a healing work in my own soul. So when I went to meet him, um, to forgive him, so I'd met him at his home. There was only him there, of course. And it was weird, when he opened the door, I was two inches taller than him. Whereas the last time I'd seen him, I was 11. So he was a feet and a half taller yes. than me. And suddenly here I am, and here's this man with gray hair, and I'm this kind of guy in his 20s, you know, who's mm. growing his masculinity. And suddenly it, it was the other way around. I was the one in power. Yeah. But I didn't go with power. Well, I went with the power of the cross to say it's important you repent so that we can both go to heaven. Because he didn't well want done, to repent. Well, and that takes courage. It takes, you know, a, a surrender, a sense of surrender and humility. Well, I tell you what it took is this is, wow. I tasted mm. of mercy. Yeah. I can't explain to you the mercy that God has shown me in all of my sinfulness and as far as I strayed with my face in the pig's trough, just like the prodigal son. In fact, the prodigal son didn't, I don't know if he had his face in the pig trough. I did. And God showed me mercy and he called me home to himself. So of course I wanted everybody to know mercy. I want yes. my brothers and sisters in the LGBTQQIAP plus 2S community, I want them to know there's a mercy and a love that awaits you yes. that is way beyond anything you can have. You know, you, you might go around in this same-sex marriage thing, as they call it. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I call it same-sex mirage. I've been the long-term homosexual, long-term heterosexual relationship. They are very, very different. Yes. <laughs> and I can see that people are trying to find more love, which is what I was searching for too. But the thing is this is, unless you come and, and you lay your life down before Christ himself and permit him to search your heart and to taste of his love, you'll never really come alive. Never. So God showed mercy after mercy after mercy to me, and he still does. So surely I am to mirror him and to show mercy towards others. It's so true. So I went it's to him. It's healing too, It's isn't healing. It's it healing. For yourself. And the, well, the thing I said, I was going to forgive him. Why? To, to set him free. Well, yes, to set him free. But first and foremost, to set me free. Yeah, isn't that powerful? I want to be set free. So I learned what it was to forgive without, you know, cutting corners or saying, oh, well, it, what happened wasn't bad. What happened to me was horrendous and traumatic. Yes. It should never have happened. Yes. And nobody's asking anybody to diminish or to belittle anything around abuse. But we also have to understand Jesus has already paid the price for every abusive action that's ever taken place. Everyone, physical, yes. sexual, domestic, the whole thing. It's all there at the cross. Sin is sin is sin. Sin is sin is sin. We're all victims of it. That's right. And sin, whatever it looks like, is evil. If yes. it's slightly sin, it's still, yeah. in of itself, evil has entered into that place. And we need to come back to hit the mark mm. of who Christ has called us mm. to be. You mentioned a little bit just about the whole thing of feminism. You mentioned um, the whole thing uh, about the whole LGBT community, etc. And I want to say this is, there is something new happening. Because what's happening is there's many in the LGBT community, 
Notice I use the letters LGB and not LGBTQ. There's many in the LGBT community, LG, yeah, LGB, who recognize that this ideology and mentality that people can change their sex or are born in the wrong body. There are many in the LGB community that says that is absolute hogwash. That cannot be true. Again, this comes back to the fact there is nothing in biology that says that can be true. And there are so many people, and I'm walking alongside a number of them, some who have said they want to transition, and in our own support network, you know, we meet with each other, we talk through our stories, and when we learn to decipher and decide what bits have been missing in your life. Where do we need to, to permit you to, to go through a cycle of your development that you haven't been through, or where you've, you've got neglect, or where you've been abused? often one or the other. Yeah. So what you haven't received is neglect. What you received that you shouldn't have received is called abuse. And generally we're dealing with these two things. And the solution to abuse and neglect is forgiveness and repentance. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it, it becomes quite simple, but also building a community around ourselves and being called towards holiness. God is perfectly capable of leading people. You know, so, you know, we, and there's a place for therapy and I don't want to un under, uh, um, undermine that whatsoever. In fact, I do want to raise that up because many of our laws today now, particularly across the Western world, the LGBTQ protagonists and ideologues are trying to now shut down therapy and prayer for people around sexuality. Why would they want to do that, particularly prayer? Because they know it works. Yes. They know that what happens is if people do get a hold of this, then they too would have to humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is the doorway towards love, yes. and towards life Amen. and towards Amen. truth. But we're seeing now that the, the feminists and members of the LGB community who are splitting away from the T&Q community, they're willing to work in collaboration with crazy people like myself. So I, I, I'm hearing from different, women, different feminists um, who years ago I wouldn't have wanted any bar of. I was just interested in the guys, mate, you know? Yeah. And um, um, there are people from the LGB Alliance in Australia and elsewhere who um, want to work with um, people in the church and others, because they're saying, well, you know, in some way, we're more like you than some of these others who are trying to basically take sexuality and, and identity off a cliff edge. Yeah, they're adding any letter they can <coughs> under this one banner. That's right. And sort of forcing all these different issues under one and packaging it. That's right. And uh, yeah, it's almost, uh, what did I see recently? Um, uh, the L L LGBT community for Palestine and it was Queer like, for hang Palestine. on, hang on, hold yeah. on, hold on. Uh, we're mixing things here. Now. Yes, yeah. We've got sexual identity, that's one thing. Whether you're attracted, that's another thing. Same-sex attracted. Whether you're trans, <laughs> I mean, we're dealing with very different things. And now, yeah. what, what's coming, what's on the horizon? You well, I mean, look, ultimately, and, and this was, uh, this is a tough topic to talk about, of course, yes. for some viewers and listeners maybe. But there are a good number of people in LGBTQ plus leadership. And I want to specify mm. that's leadership. This is not your cousin, your brother, your uncle, whatever it is who says they're gay or lesbian, whatever it might be. But there are a number in the LGBTQ leadership who have for years been pushing for one particular agenda, which is the ultimate goal. And that is the sexualization of everybody, that there would be no age of consent. So in other words, they realize if they can put the pressure or they can say to an eight-year-old, well, if you don't transition from boy to girl, or from girl to boy, or non-binary, or you don't want to be gender fluid, etc., if you can make that decision at the age of eight, 
then somewhere down the line, very, very nearby to us, will be the fact that, what if this child can make that decision? They can make a decision with who they'd like to be sexual with. So we went from the word paedophile to a modern phrase today, which is called a MAP, a minor attracted person, which doesn't sound half as um, mm. um, volatile as the word paedophile. But then a new phrase they're trying to push in is the AAP, the adult, sorry, the AAM, the adult attracted minor. So it's saying children have every right to make the decisions they want to make. So there are um, global um, gay rights activists like somebody called Peter Tatchell, who's based in the UK, but from Melbourne. And um, um, he's often turned around and said, you know, I've got many friends who were really happy being sexual adults when they were nine, 10, 11, and who are we to challenge them about this? Well, in somewhere other, I learned what it was to just get on with having sex with an adult when I was eight, nine, 10, 11. I didn't tell anybody. I got used to no, it. That's true. So in some way, Somebody said to me as an adult male, if I was still in the gay community, somebody said, oh, how old you when you first started having sex? I might have said, if I'd had revelation of that again, I might say, oh, well, thinking about it, mm, I was eight. Oh, well, there you are. So it should be fine for kids to have sex. I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's right, yeah. But it's only as a result of that deliberate sexualization that any child would turn around and say, well, sex before puberty or even post-puberty, really, 11, 12, 13, 14, is only as a, as a result of the West, West sort of um, promotion of this sort of this sexual agenda, what's yeah. called a comprehensive sexual education. A child needs comprehensive sexual education at no point, <laughs> as in mm. comprehensive. They don't need to know everything. That's right. There's age appropriate to have an understanding, but first and foremost, we have lost an understanding of the dignity of the human body. But I'll say this as well, even 30, 35 years ago, when I first began to enter towards the gay community, is the ultimate goal as well was to get rid of male and female. Now I'm gonna say wow, this to back you. Then. I was a 19 year old having conversations in the lesbian and gay center in London. And the Americans and the British who were there one night at the bar, these Americans were talking about the fact there's an, a, gay, a very clear gay agenda. And part of that was to get rid of male and female. I remember thinking, That'll never happen. How can you get rid of male and female? You've only got males and females. Yeah. But you look 35 years later, look at where we are. There's a very, very deliberate push on all these pronouns that, you know, we can't assume anybody's male or female, etc., whatever it is. It is a very, very deliberate push to, strong word, but to bastardize the word of God, to turn around and say male and female, he did not create them. Yeah. And there are many priests now, and I've heard them, I heard, a guy called Father James Allison, who is going around the world and he's promoting this and saying, you know, what a horrible document the Vatican brought out, brought out called Male and Female. He created them. I was in a seminar with him a few weeks ago and he said this and he said, what a despicable document this is, how this harms people who are intersex, etc. And um, I want to, I, and I deliberately use um, Father James by name because, because what happens is we, we have to be very, very careful. Of, of how our shepherds lead us. I'm not saying that his intentions or his heart isn't, isn't, isn't meant to be good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying though that my lived experience as a man with gender dysphoria and my lived experience of walking alongside those who in some cases after two decades have transitioned and my lived experience today with those who are talking about transitioning and walking with some of those people I know who are in the midst of transitioning, he does not have the full story. 
And some of our pastors and our leaders don't have the full story. And this is why I say it's really important that we're all the time saying, why is what's happening happening? Why? Look beneath the surface, yes. beneath the surface, beneath the surface. And this is why Jesus, I think, in the Gospels doesn't just get asked a number of questions, but often he answers with a question. He's saying to them, why are you asking this to me? Because you already know the answer. Or if mm. you don't know it, you need to go and discover it for yourself because it's within you. The master teacher right there. Absolutely. The, the, you, you do, you do uh, mention uh, many of us are looking at, at these issues one-sided. So we'll see 180 degrees. And I like that analogy because... We, we ignore the other 180 degrees. So we're not getting a 360 degree. You're not getting a 360 degrees. Uh, You're not getting the full, the full picture. And I mean, again, many viewers and listeners won't know this, but even in the past decade, there are numerous books that uh, turn around and document how people move from homosexuality towards, uh, in, in some cases, a more heterosexual or a more settled sexuality mm -hmm. generally, or where people who've been incredibly promiscuous um, have ended up being able to embrace chastity. And there's been a very, very deliberate ban on the printing of those books. Mm. Uh, you know, some books in my bookshelf were worth 20 bucks and overnight they're worth a couple of thousand because now you can't get them in print anymore. <laughs> you know, um, I should probably put them into some form of safe somewhere <laughs> yeah. or they, you know, um, where they, they, they can't be affected by fire or theft. But, but nevertheless, the thing is this is, so there is a very, very deliberate push in our society to silence people like myself. So for example, if we were having this discussion in the state of Victoria here in Australia, um, I could be fined up to $100,000 and in prison for 10 years, sorry, $200,000. I could be in prison for 10 years just for sharing my story. And you as an organization interviewing me, you could be fined a million dollars. I mean, these are extremist yeah. laws. You're just sharing your story. Just sharing my story. Through. A friend of mine, Matthew Grech in Malta, he is facing criminal charges for talking about how he left behind homosexuality and met with Christ. So basically in Malta, the, you know, the, uh, the legal authorities there are taking him before the courts because he shared his story. Why would you want to shut down our stories? We aren't turning around in any way saying, you know, we're not anti-LGBT anybody. You're not asking how many Not at all, not, <laughs> not at all. Right, We're saying everybody has the right to tell their story. We believe yes. that. If this is your story, tell your story. Freedom of speech, right? I now. wanted the right to tell my story as a 19, 20 year old, how I thought the church was wrong. I've got every right to say that. Yeah. People come up to me often and say, well, I think you're wrong in this. I said, great, let's yeah. discuss this. We're likely to differ, but we're allowed to have freedom of speech. And more importantly, it's important that we recognize each other as dignity. Yes. That we're able to leave respecting one another. That's right. And to have compassion and sensitivity towards one another, which is what the Catholic Church teaches. Yes, always you know? has. Always has taught that. But what's happening now is we're seeing this sort of vitriolic, nasty, sort of bigoted push to say, you must celebrate homosexuality. You know, that somehow yeah. a Catholic school where people send their Catholic children, that that Catholic school now has to bend more towards an LGBTQ ideology and so-called theology. There's no such thing as an LGBTQ no. theology. Sorry, there's, there's an oxymoron. Um, but what's happening now is we're seeing more and more parents and staff and principals, and in some cases, even our, our own Christian leaders and Catholic leaders that are kowtowing to this and saying, oh, well, we don't want to offend anybody. But that tolerance that then became an acceptance that is now becoming celebrating these things and then intolerance. That's the right. Then view. there's an intolerance that comes towards yeah. those of us who've been sexually mm. abused and raped and the rest of it and said, look, yeah. we've realized there's a lot more to this than you realize. Yes. And we're told in somewhere other, you're now the problem. It's like, 
like, we don't need this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, just, we, we just wanna be able to throw our own stories into the mix and say, let, let all this settle. I, I'm a great believer that, you know, if there's oil and there's water there, the oil will rise to the surface. Yes. And by that, I mean, mean this, if there's an aspect of lies in the midst of truth, let the truth rise above the surface. Yes, yes. You know? And this is why it's important that, that, and I'm encouraging people, particularly across Australia, as I think it's now four other states, aside from Queensland and Victoria, which both have anti-conversion um, um, laws in place, uh, therapeutic, uh, anti-conversion anti therapy laws in place. I don't really know what conversion therapy is, by the way, even though I'm, apparently I'm a global proponent of this, but I still don't know what it is, but that's nothing altogether. It shows how, you know, how um, crazy this whole thing is. Yes. But we've got, we've now, we're now shutting down therapy where people can talk about sexuality or sexual attraction because everybody's been told just the way you are. Well, most people who transition and become trans have come out and said they were gay or they were lesbian previously. So if they're saying that, were they liars? That's right. Or were they born that way? And this is what's going on. There's, it's, it's, it is this craziness happening. And paradox is galore yes. happening. And yet people are just saying, oh, we've got to accept this, we've got to accept this, we've got to accept this. I say, accept nothing until you've done that 360 mm -hmm. degrees of research. Absolutely. And you've listened to the stories and you've listened very carefully to the stories. Yes. You know, I believe people who say, I think the church has got it wrong and I'm gay and that's the way it is. You have every right to tell your story and I'll share a platform with you telling mm. that story. But you too must permit me to tell my story. So if I want to challenge Wear It Purple Day, which I do, or I want to challenge Ida Hot Day, the International Day of, um, I think, the Acceptance of Homosexuality, yeah. whatever it is. I've got every right to do that in a democracy. Yes. And it's not that I'm trying to be hostile towards people, but there might be a belief system that hasn't worked for me, hasn't worked for others, isn't working for others. And in some cases, it's actually causing people greater mental distress. And it's important that we speak up and we address these things. But some of these laws that have been passed in Queensland, in Victoria, and in the Australian Capital Territory, that have now come into Canada and into many of the parts of the world and many of the states in the US that they want to bring here in Australia to Tasmania, New South Wales, South Australia, and to Western Australia. The realization that people haven't woken up to is this is, you bring those laws in, and what it does is it stops people who are victims of childhood sexual abuse and of adult sexual assault from being able to go and to discuss how that sexual assault and molestation has now affected the way they see themselves as a sexual person. What a profound injustice yes. that is. So in the name of justice, we've got people actually creating laws that will create a greater injustice for the, for, say the majority, for huge numbers of our population. Yes. Because many of our young people today are being overtly sexualized in a way that they can't process and deal with. So they are indirectly, even through some of the curriculum now, being sexually abused. Now, some people would say, well, I don't believe that's true. Well, you may not, but they're going through what I went through and it was sexual abuse. Sorry. So we have to be really attentive to this. We've got to wake up politicians. Yes. We've got to wake up our church leaders. Yes. And particularly within Catholic and Orthodox settings where our teaching has been so, so sh sharp for so many years. We need to make sure that that teaching is not blunted, but not just that, but as we uphold truth, we open the doors to mercy after mercy after mercy. Amen. An ocean of mercy Love it. that Jesus spoke to St. Faustina about. For all Must of us. This. For all of us. Amen. I could go all day with you, James, uh, but uh, we have to end it there. But um, I've 
um, I wish we can keep going, but you've got to, I mean, this, this new um, uh, network that you've established, can you just quickly tell us about that and how people can get in, involved? Well, in I mean, really, we, we, uh, we're quite a loose network in many ways, and, and that's because we want the flexibility for everybody to be able to, mm. to come in and be involved in. And for some, some members, they find a struggle with other members may be. So we've got lots of different things we, we gather together for those who've uh, left the LGBT community, they still might identify as, as, as or that they, they recognise that their same-sex attraction is as fully same-sex attracted as it was previously. But they've realised the label doesn't work for them anymore. So they have left that community. Um, and there's others who have, um, in a sense, they've been deeply touched by um, their own journey with Christ. And in some cases, they've begun to experience, you know, um, feelings towards the opposite sex. Um, so there's groups like that. There's other groups that gather together, uh, groups for men who've been sexually abused, groups for women who've been sexually abused. Um, we um, provide uh, accountability groups for people um, around pornography. So, you know, all male groups for, of accountability, all female groups for the women and, and the younger women today who are struggling with pornography. And um, uh, then there's also a space and a place for, for parents and for family members to be able to also come and to find some form of support. Uh, and there's three areas we work in. We work in education, um, which in some way what we're doing here today. Yes. We work in recovery, which is that hands-on-hand hand, hand hand work with, or hand-in-hand work rather, with people walking alongside them and supporting them through their own therapeutic journey and on their spiritual journey. And then the third area is advocacy. So it's speaking up, it's proclaiming, it's just saying, look, hey, we have a right to our fundamental human rights, a right to freedom of religion, yes. a right to freedom of therapeutic choice, mm -hmm. um, a right to uh, make our own choices mm -hmm. in the area of human sexuality. You know, without, without one group saying, shut up, you know, or we want to crush you. You know, often the LGBTQ community, and again, the ideologues and protagonists, they turn around and they, are, they say, oh, the injustice towards us, everybody's intolerant and everybody's bigoted and everybody's hate-filled. Well, they are the micro-minority that's now bullying many of us as a micro minority. Mm. That's not on. And we're not gonna shut up. In fact, I learned that when I first became a gay rights activist years ago. I learned to speak up when there was hardly anybody else there. Number one at school, number one in university to come out. Well, I'm quite happy to be number one to be fighting this cause. And if it gets me a bullet or throws me into prison, it's worth it. But we're not gonna be quiet about it because we found a greater degree of life and we've come to understand the mercy of God. And we realize that Christ is calling each one of us back home to him. So true identity is much about that. Education, recovery, advocacy, in all those varied areas around sexuality, gender identity. Wow. There, there is a website. Uh, we'll put the People link can find it on Facebook. If they go to true identity on Facebook, they'll find okay. it there. And then there's also a YouTube uh, channel as well that they Excellent. can find. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for being so open, so uh, vulnerable, um, being able to share. Uh, it, it's a very heavy topic on many levels. Many so, levels. Uh, but it, we need to talk about this. And we need to be able to share this. And, but doing it in a way where we're not feeling judged by people no. and, and no. We, are, we are able to be heard and, mm. um, and we can share this uh, safely and, and, and still be friends and all of this. So uh, I'm praying for your work. It's so important. It's vital for today. Praying for our country, praying for our world. And praying for all those people who are who are who are suffering quietly and silently and, and don't feel that they could come out. That's right. And I, want to say, to, I want to say to them. What could you, your final message for them? God loved God really loves you. Amen. 
God loves you and there is absolutely an open door and a place in the church for you. There really is. You don't walk into a, into a Catholic or an Orthodox church, etc., with somebody with a checklist saying, what's your sexuality, who you're attracted to? Come and take your place alongside everybody else who's struggling in some way or other, however slightly or greatly, with these similar issues. They may not be same-sex attraction, there may not be pornography. It could just be an issue around chastity or even mm. an issue around self-worth. My final message is God loves you. The church has a place for you. Come with us and walk towards the cross because Jesus has his gift for us. It's called holiness. And it's a grafting of his heart into our hearts and the heart of his mother Mary as well on the route. Beautiful. Well said. James Parker, thank you very much. Thank you, Charles Bell. God bless you. today. Thanks. That was another uh, Perusia podcast. I hope you got a lot out of that. And we're only scratching the surface here. So please check out the social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, this is such important work today. And I hope you realize that with me. Let's pray for James and all the people he's working with. And uh, let's, let's pray for our leaders to really uh, open up and, and really be enlightened about this because it's important we get the truth out there. Please pray for our work at Perusia Media, uh, our website as always, perusiamedia.com, and our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash Perusia. Subscribe, click the bell, share these videos far and wide. The world needs to do it. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Shabal Rais, your host. Till next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.